Episode number seven, Puerto Rico. Hello, board game fans. This is Ryan Sturm, your host of the How to Play podcast, coming to you from the Queen City, Buffalo, here in western New York. Today we're talking about Puerto Rico. This episode was recorded on November 21st, 2009. If you're a repeat listener, thanks for tuning in once again. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. We're going to be talking about teaching and learning Puerto Rico. I've changed the format just a bit so that you can go to the sections that you're most interested in. We're going to have the first three parts right away, and I'm going to take a lot of those other things that I like to talk about, the musings, the history of the game, and slide them back to part four in the footnote section. So the part one and two will have the introduction and the main part of the rules. Part three, the hamster, as always, will give you some beginning strategy tips to get started with this game. And part four in the footnotes, I'll have some finer points of the rules, as well as some thinking about the game history, the impact of this game on other board games, and other thoughts I have about making a game of Puerto Rico successful. So if you're new to the game, you'll probably want to listen to the whole thing. Or if you just want to listen to the rules, you can listen to the first three parts. If you know the game already and want to find out some beginning strategy and maybe some thoughts about the game, you may want to skip ahead to part three and four. You'll be able to tell where sections start from listening for that guitar music that breaks up each section. I hope this organization makes how to play more useful to you. Let's get into it. We'll start with a brief complexity rating. I rate Puerto Rico a black diamond. This is a game for gamers. It has a fair amount of rules. Uh, appeals mostly to people who like games and like to play games repeatedly. It, it has more of a payoff if you play it more times in a row. The rules aren't too hard to pick up on, they're pretty intuitive, uh, but this is a game you want to play a few times to really get to know. And from there, let's get right into the hook. Part one, the hook. What this game is about. Puerto Rico is a game about power-hungry, greedy, mean people, and you want to be the worst of them. You are a greedy, greedy Spanish nobleman with holdings in the new colony of Puerto Rico, which means a rich port. It's a very rich port indeed, and you hope it will make you much richer. You're going to use your wealth to exploit a cheap and ever-expanding labor force of slaves and try to make yourself the most powerful nobleman of Puerto Rico. The two ways you will demonstrate your power, shown by victory points, are by shipping goods, and by building buildings. Whoever obtains the most points from doing these two things, shipping and building, will be the greediest nobleman of all and declared the winner. Part two, the meat. How do you play the game? So, to win this game, you want to ship a lot of goods and build a lot of buildings. How are you going to do that? This game is played in rounds. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, in most games, there's a pre-programmed order for the different phases of what happens in a turn. In this game, the players get to choose what happens in a turn. For example, if you're playing a four-player game, 
There's seven possible choices for what the players can do in a turn. The person who goes first is going to pick one of those seven choices, and everyone's going to do that. The next person is going to pick one of those choices, and everyone's going to do that. Keep going until each player has had a turn picking uh, one of those seven things. Then we will pass the start player marker, and another person will get a chance to go first, and we'll do it all over again. When it is your turn, you get to pick from one of the seven things that are possible to do in the game. And when you pick something, you get two advantages. First of all, you get to do whatever it is first, and everyone else does that same thing in turn order. But you'll get a little bit of a bonus for being the person who picked that action. So what are these actions I'm talking about? Well, there's seven different choices. So the seven choices are settler. You can build one of those square cardboard plantation tiles, like corn plantation, indigo plantation, tobacco plantation. You could be the builder and build a building. The building are those rectangles on the main mat in the center of the table. They are purple, white, blue, brown, and dark brown. You could take the craftsman. This lets you get goods. The goods are those octagonal shaped items that are yellow and blue. Those represent corn, indigo, and so on through the game. You could take the captain, which is letting you ship the goods to Spain. So you're going to move the goods from your player board onto the ships to get points. You could be the trader if you wanted to instead take those goods and sell them for money to the merchant. You could be the mayor to get people to work in your plantations and buildings. Or you could just take the prospector to get some more money. So how a round works is someone is randomly chosen as the governor, which is the start player, and they pick from one of those seven things. Settler, builder, craftsman, captain, trader, prospector, or mayor. They get to choose first and can pick any of those things. They will pick something. Say they pick settler. They'll take the settler card and then they'll be able to build a plantation from the available choices. And everybody else around the table will then get to pick one of the plantations from what's left. Again, the person who chose the settler card gets two advantages. They get to pick first from the available tiles there, and then they'll also get a special bonus, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Then it's the next player's turn. They get to choose from the jobs that are left, so any of the ones that aren't settler. There are six choices there. Perhaps they choose the builder, so they decide what to build, and then everyone else builds a building. And remember, that person who picked the builder, he's going to get a special bonus. Then the third player in the game will go, and then finally the fourth player. And that will end the round. Now after everyone has chosen a job, there are three jobs that are left over. You're going to take one doubloon from the bank, that's the money in the game, and you're going to put one doubloon on each one that was unchosen. That's going to encourage people to take those in the next round. Because in the next round, we'll put all of those jobs back. There'll be seven choices. The next person clockwise will be named the new governor and they'll have seven choices, three of them which have a buck on them to encourage someone to take one of those jobs. And we continue in this way until the end of the game. Now I'm going to go back over and talk about each of these different jobs in quite a bit of detail because these are really the heart of the game. And this game is really all about picking the right person at the right time. All of these abilities for your convenience are right there in front of you on your player mat which is a very handy dandy thing. They also have a symbol there to help you remember what those different things do. So I'm going to go over those from top to bottom. And they also have the bonus that I talked about called on your card a privilege. So let's talk about all of those things starting with the settler. The settler has a picture of a cart on it. When you take the settler everyone's going to get a chance to take a plantation. 
the plantations are needed for you to get the resources. There's five different kinds of plantations, corn, indigo, sugar, tobacco, and coffee. The game calls these square tiles plantations. I often think of them as farms, it's a little easier to say. So you might hear me refer to these either as plantations or as farms throughout the explanation. So when someone takes Settler, there will be X plus one choices of plantations to choose from, where X is the number of players. So if there's four players, there'll be five choices. And the first person to get to go gets first choice. They can pick any of those plantations to choose from. Then the next person will go around the table and so on. The special bonus of picking the settler is that you can take a quarry instead. The quarry gives you a discount on buildings. You get minus one on the price of any building you want. If you look over at the main player board, you'll see those buildings, and they have different prices. The prices is the gray number on them. You'll notice that the buildings are divided into four columns, and at the top they have quarry symbols on them, one, two, three, or four. That tells you the maximum discount that you can get for those buildings. The small buildings, you can only get a one discount if you have one quarry with a person on it. Even if you have two or three quarries on those first columns, you can only get minus one. Whereas all the way at the big buildings, if you have up to four quarries all with people in them, you can get up to minus four on the price of those buildings. So the quarries can be very valuable, but you can only get them if you take the settler. As Soon as everyone has taken a plantation, put it right on their player board on the bottom. Make sure to clear any that were not taken and flip up five or six more depending on the number of players so that people can see what's available for the next round. Next, the mayor. First of all, we gotta talk about this mayor guy. I mean, come on, look at these people in this picture, these heads here. Think about this boat crammed with people. Uh, have you, you read some history books about Puerto Rico and about you know the people, masses of people crammed into small boats coming over to Puerto Rico to work on the sugar plantations? Now, I would not call those people colonists. Uh, I think the correct term for those is slaves. And being a history guy, this kind of bugs me and detracts from the authenticity of the game. So if you want to call them colonists, call them colonists. But I'm calling them slaves, and I'm calling this mayor guy a slaver. Because that's what he is, a dirty, dirty slaver. Now that being said, you're going to need this guy because you need people to work on your plantations and in your building. So by taking the slaver, you're going to be able to take the available colonists in the ship, and distribute them one at a time clockwise around the table. So if there's four and there's four players, everyone will get, the, get one. If there's five, then everyone will get one and then you'll get an extra one. Again, if there's nine, you'll get three and everyone else will get two. So you're gonna wanna look at that. The bonus for taking the slaver is you get one extra slave from the stock. So if there is actually five slaves on the ship, you're gonna pass one to every person, there's one left, so you'll get one, and then you'll get your one bonus. So you're actually gonna get three slaves when everyone else will get one. So that's a good deal for you. You're gonna to wanna to pay attention to that. So after you pass out the slaves, this is the fun part because you get to decide where those people need to go to work. And there's little circles on both the plantations and on the buildings. Nothing works unless it has a person working it. So you need to decide carefully. You rarely will have enough people to go on all those little places in your buildings. You need to decide who's going to be working in what and what you're going to leave empty. If you happen to have extra guys, you have that little picture of the city, San Juan, you can put extra guys there. You can leave your guys there, and then next time there's a slaver phase, you can move them all around again. 
You can only move your pieces during the slaver phase. And that's why when, when people take the slaver, you're going to have to wait for a little bit and while everybody decides carefully where they want all their slaves to work. You have to make sure everybody's all set with how they want to place those slaves. And then once everybody's done, you can move on to refilling the ship and the next person's turn. So your last duty as the slaver is to fill your ship with slaves. You fill your ship based on the demand. You look at the buildings. These are the rectangle buildings at the top of everyone's city there. So only look at the city on the top of everyone's board. Count the empty circles. If there's less than the number of players, you put the number of players on the ship. So say there were only two empty circles out there in people's cities. Then you're going to just put four into that uh, slave ship. Now if there's a whole bunch of empties, which happens quite a bit, uh, you know, if there are nine or ten, that's how many you would take from the stock and put on the ship. That's going to be important for people to look at and say, all right, the next person who takes the slaver is going to get first crack at dividing up all those people. Things commonly forgotten. Remember to refill that ship. Other people help remind them so that you don't go past that part. That's pretty important. The rules say if you do forget, and you will find that you do this the first few times you play this game, it gets you know a few more turns in and you see that that ship is still empty and things might have changed. You refill the ship with just the minimum, which is the number of players at that point. Also remember when you're counting how many circles to fill the ship with, you only count the empty buildings. Do not count the square farms. Next, the builder. The builder has a picture of a wall being built there and it's for building the buildings. The buildings are all those tiles in the central playboard. There are a billion buildings there, and you probably don't want to read what they all do right now. I'll talk about some of them more in the hamster, but for now it's good to know that really there's only three types of buildings. Look at the colored buildings like the white, the blue, the light brown, and the dark brown. These are for producing goods. There are small purple buildings, all right? These are on the bottom left area. Each of these have a special ability which will help you throughout the game. And the big buildings on the right side, these are the most expensive and they offer a, a large victory point bonus at the end of the game. You really wanna try to obtain and man one of these by the end of the game. Be aware that the buildings are limited. There's only two of each of the purple special buildings and only one of the big point buildings. So those buildings will disappear, especially the ones that are a little more powerful and people are gunning for as quickly as possible. So you need to be aware of that. Also know that you're only allowed to have one of each kind of building. So when you take the builder, a big advantage is you get to buy your building first, but your bonus is you get a one doubloon discount on what you purchase. The buildings have two numbers on them that you need to know what they mean. There's a gray number and a red number. The gray number is the cost of the building in doubloons, and the red number is the amount of victory points that building is worth at the end of the game. Alright, let's make some goods. To do that we need to take the craftsman. The craftsman icon is a bunch of boxes all stacked up. When you take the craftsman, everybody gets products in clockwise order. To get a product, for most products, you need to have 
one person in a plantation and one person in a production building. So to make indigo, you need a person in the farm growing the indigo, and then you also need someone in the plant to process it. So if you have one of each of those things, you will get one indigo product. You'll take one of those octagonal blue pieces and you get to take it and put it in your stock, which is right on your compass rose. Now another example is, say, coffee. You have a coffee roaster building and you have two people in it and you have three manned coffee plantations. So you've got three coffee farms and they all have people in them. Then you would get two coffee because you only have two people in the building. You have three in the farm, but since the most you have is two in the factory and more than two in the farm, you'll get two of those coffee resources, which is the dark brown. Corn works a little bit different. Corn is kind of nice because it doesn't need to be processed at all. You just need to have people in corn plantations. So if you have three corn plantations and they all have people in them, you would get three corn goods, which are of course the yellow goods. So you each take turns taking the goods from the stock. You go in turn order clockwise around the board because the resources are limited and if a group runs out, that person is just out of luck. After everyone has taken all of their goods, the person who took Craftsman will get their bonus, which is they get one bonus good of something they produce that turn. So say someone produced coffee and corn, they could take a coffee or a corn good as their bonus if one was available. All right, so you have goods. You're gonna wanna do something with them. The next two roles are what you can do with your goods. First of all, the trader. The trader icon is a picture of a money bag. What the trader allows you to do is sell one of those goods for some money. Now the trader is very picky. He'll only buy one of each kind of good at the prices listed on his card. And once he's bought four goods, he won't buy any more until the end of the turn. And then the trader will sail off and his space will empty and you can start selling more things to him. So if I take the trader and I sell indigo to him, the next person can't sell indigo anymore until that card has all filled up. As you can see, tobacco and coffee sell for three and four, which is quite a bit of money. That's the advantage of spending those big bucks to get the tobacco and the coffee plant and get that going. You can sell them for quite a bit of money. And the bonus for taking the trader phase is the person who takes it gets one extra gold if they sell something to the trader. So if I sell an indigo, I'll get two doubloons instead of just one. You'll notice corn sells for zero. Why would you ever want to sell for zero? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, you could get extra because you have a market building, which lets you sell for more. You could have taken the trader, so you'll still get a buck for it regardless. And maybe you want to just sell that fourth thing to the trader so the trader house will empty so that he can buy more stuff. Now the captain. This is how we ship our goods and you can see the icon is a captain's wheel. There are three boats in the game, each with different capacities. Each boat can only hold one type of good. You can't mix tobacco and corn on the same boat for some strange reason. The person who gets to go first gets to load, not only gets to, but must load something that they have, one of their goods, and put it on one of the boats. So if I have corn, I have to take all of the corn that I have and choose which boat to put it on. So maybe I take three corn and put it in one of those boats. Then the next person, say they had tobacco and corn, I can either load the corn or I can load the tobacco onto a different boat. And that's my choice. But if I can ship goods onto a boat, 
I must ship goods. And when I ship them, I must ship all possible goods. You can't save them for selling them or any other reason. Now, it's very likely it will happen that the person who goes last, especially, might get shut out. Say, the first three people load the first three boats with corn, indigo, and tobacco, and the last person's holding sugar. Well, they're going to be stuck with all of that sugar. Another important thing to know about ships is to keep in mind their capacity. When you load, you're going to want to look at how many spots each ship has available and choose depending on whether you want to deliver a lot of that good or maybe you don't want quite as much room on that ship. If a ship is full, you can only load on what the ship can hold. And you have to wait till the very end of the captain phase and at that time any ships that are completely full will get emptied. Any ships that are not completely full will stay that way for the next round. So if you have a ship with just one little space left on it, that might be too bad for you if you're sitting there with a lot of corn and hoping to move a lot more corn. Also, if there's already corn on one of the three boats, you're not allowed to load corn on a second boat. Now why do you want to ship these goods? Every good that you ship is a victory point that you're going to get. There are little victory point chips, they're hexagonal. So if I ship three corn, then I'm going to get three of those victory point chips. And I'll put those face down on my mat. Now it's important to know sometimes you'll have to go several cycles around the table until everyone has loaded all of the goods that they possibly could onto the ships. After everyone has loaded all of the goods that they could, spoiling is triggered. These goods don't last forever. And if you're stuck with a bunch of goods at the end of the shipping phase, you're going to have some problems. You are allowed to warehouse one single good. Everything else that you're stuck with at this point is gone. It goes back to the stock. So sad. So if you had, say, three sugar and one corn, I could maybe pick one of those sugar, but then I'm going to have to discard two of those sugar and the corn. So you need to know that the captain is a game changer. It's a great way to get points and also lose goods. Beware that when someone takes craftsman, it's very likely that the next person is going to take captain. Which means that say you were that person took craftsman, hooray, I got like seven or eight goods. Now the next person captains and you're the last person to get the choice of where to put goods on the ship. It's very, very likely that you're going to end up throwing away a lot of those goods that you made for yourself and also made lots of goods for other people. You don't want to be that guy. So you need to look one or two steps ahead so that if you craftsman, when someone captains, is that going to work for you or is that not going to work for you? Now, of course, the captain has a bonus. When the captain ships, the first time they ship, they get a bonus victory point. So say they ship two corn. They're going to get three victory points instead of two. But that's only for the first time around. Say it gets around to them again and they ship one indigo. They only get one victory point as normal. Now, finally, is the prospector. The prospector is great because it only has a bonus. Everybody doesn't get to do anything. You just get one doubloon. And if no one's taking it for a turn or two, you might get two or three doubloons. The really nice thing about this action is that nobody else gets to do anything. So if among the actions that are remaining left for you to choose, there aren't any that help you at all, but will probably help other people, you definitely want to take this Prospector Act because you get money and nobody else gets anything. So that was a lot of rules thrown at you. It's important to remember the two main goals of the game. You'll want to ship goods and you'll want to build buildings because these are the things that are going to give you victory points. Look at the different jobs and context of those two things. 
First of all, if you want to ship goods, the things that are going to have to happen, you're going to have to settle a plantation, you're going to have to probably build a production building unless you have corn. So say you got indigo, you're going to need an indigo plant. Then you're going to need someone to take the slavers so you can get slaves for those two things both one in the plantation and one in the building. Then someone's going to have to take craftsmen so you can produce the goods. And then someone's going to have to take captains so you can ship the goods and get victory points. The nice thing is you don't have to do all these things yourself. Other people are going to help you out by doing some of these things for you. Now the other thing you must be able to do is build some buildings. In order to build buildings you're going to need money. You have to have a way to get money in this game. Because if you can't get money, you can't buy buildings. And if you won't buy any buildings, you're going to lose the game. So there are several ways to get money for the buildings. Some of them are just to take the prospector, to take rolls that have one or two doubloons on them, to take the trader roll, and especially to sell something like coffee or tobacco. Or you can build these quarries. Remember the special ability of the settler was to build quarries? Those give you a discount on buildings. They'll make them a bit cheaper for you. And finally, there's a very powerful building called a factory, which if you man that, you get doubloons for producing a certain number of different resources. So if you produce three or four or five different kinds of resources, the factory earns you money no matter if you were the person who took Craftsman or not. Now to make all this clear, let's look at a few turns from a sample game from our four players, Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Voldemort. Now I have to say, I was going to do this bit and I was going to use all this, these great British accents, there was going to be sound effects, explosions, um, but then my wife told me, Ryan, you can't do that, your English accent is horrible. You're going to alienate the, you know, seven of your 12 listeners you need to cut it out with the silly voices. Poppycock, Master Stern, your English accent is bloody brilliant. Thanks, little Timmy, I really appreciate that. But, you know, I, I just don't want to offend anybody, so we're just going to do this straight up. Alrighty then, toodaloo. So Harry Potter was randomly selected as the governor. He chooses the settler role. He uses that special ability to take a quarry. It's now Ron's turn, he has to choose from the plantations that are available. He takes a corn plantation, Hermione takes an indigo plantation, and Voldemort takes a coffee plantation. We then clear the untaken plantations and we refill five more plantations. Next, it's Ron's turn. Ron decides to be the builder. He takes the builder card and decides to buy a small market. The small market normally costs one doubloon, but since he's the builder, it's one minus one, so he pays zero. He takes that, he puts it in his city, Hermione then goes, she wants to buy a small indigo plant, and it costs one doubloon, so she buys that. Voldemort decides to also buy a small market, he pays his one doubloon. And finally, Harry decides to buy a large indigo plant, which costs three doubloons. Next, it's Hermione's turn. She takes the slaver. There are four slaves on it at the beginning of the game, so she gives one to each person around the table. Then she gets her one bonus person, so she has two slaves. She puts one on the indigo plant, the small one she just bought, and one into her indigo plantation. Now she's all set. If someone takes craftsmen, she's going to get one of those goods. Voldemort takes his slave and puts him in the small market. Harry puts his in the quarry, and Ron mans his corn plantation. Now don't forget, refill the slaves. So we clear those out. We count how many empty circles there are on buildings, not in the plantations. There's four empty circles, so we put four slaves in there so people will know for next time. Now it's Voldemort's turn. 
in typical Voldemort fashion, he takes the prospector because it will give him a doubloon and give everybody else nothing. So the traitor, the captain, and the craftsman were not taken. We put a doubloon on each of those. All the jobs come back to the center of the board so that anyone can take them. Now Harry has to pass the governorship clockwise, which will be Ron, and Ron gets to start the next round. He has a choice of all seven jobs, and three of them are going to give him a bonus doubloon. Craftsman seems to make a lot of sense for him. He takes that because he gets a bonus doubloon, and he gets a corn. And then Hermione gets indigo because she set that all up. Voldemort and Harry will get nothing. Then Ron gets his bonus. He gets one extra corn because he was the one who took the craftsman. Now it's Hermione's turn. She wisely takes the traitor. She sells her indigo for one. Plus she gets an extra one for the traitor bonus. Plus there's one extra money sitting on the traitor card. So she's getting three doubloons. Ron has one good he could sell, but he would only get zero for it, so there's no point. And the other guys don't have any goods to sell. That's how we do it, Hermione. She's not the top of her class at Gryffindor for nothing. That's how you want to play this game. Good things happen to her and nothing for anybody else. The Indigo is going to stay on that trader card until all four spots are filled up and no one else can sell Indigo until the card is filled. It is Voldemort's turn and he decides to take the Settler so that he can pick up a quarry which when he mans it will make that coffee roaster he wants to buy a little cheaper so that you know he can set up that evil Starbucks business and make everyone addicted to it and have to keep buying his coffee. So it's Harry's turn, he has to pick a plantation. He takes an indigo because he has that big indigo plant. Ron takes a sugar because no one has that yet. And Hermione with great moral ambivalence takes a tobacco plantation. We clear away any that were not taken. We reset, put five more face-up farms down. Now Harry is the last to go. He takes the slaver. Remember there were four slaves there. Everyone gets one. Harry gets a bonus one. Harry takes his two slaves. He puts one on the plantation and one on the large indigo plant that he made. So now when someone takes the craftsman, Harry can produce a indigo as well. Ron takes his slave, puts it in his small market. Hermione puts her person in the tobacco plantation and Voldemort puts a man in his quarry so hopefully he can get that coffee roaster. Everyone's gone once, that's the end of the round. The builder and the prospector each get a doubloon. The captain gets another doubloon, so now it has two doubloons on it, meaning someone will really want to take that captain, but someone's going to have to craftsman first so we have some goods to load on the boat. And so on and on the game goes. You get a feel for that's the way that the game flows. The game continues like this until one of three ending conditions happen. One, you don't have enough slaves to put on the slave ship. Two, you're out of the victory point chips. Or three, someone fills their city. The city is the top part, meaning all 12 building spaces have been built. And remember, it's buildings, not farms. When one of these things happen, you finish that round, meaning everyone makes sure they have chosen a job that turn, and then you score up your points. I usually don't talk about setup and how to play, but it's very important you know that there's a specific amount of victory point chips and slaves that you put in depending on the number of players. So you need to make sure that you have that correct number or the game will last too long. Figuring out your score is quite simple. You're simply going to add your shipping point chips and the red numbers on your buildings. The only other victory points you might add is if you had a bonus from one of those big purple buildings that have victory point bonuses. 
You do have to have a guy in there to get the points from the bonus on the card. You do not have to have a person on them in order to get the red victory point bonus. Winning point totals in this game are relatively low compared to with a lot of other games. Winning scores can be between 30 and 60, depending on the skill level of the players. It's very important to know that those shipping points, you can get so focused on that, but know that that's only half or sometimes a lot less than half of your potential score. You can't forget about getting points from building buildings. So the person with the most points is the most exploitative man in Puerto Rico and declared the winner of the game. Not only have you subjected a race of people to your material whims, but you have also most likely cleverly manipulated the other players to do your bidding without them even realizing it. Now would be an appropriate time to give an evil laugh. You deserve it. No, really, congratulations. I hope you're proud of yourself. Part 3. The Hamster. How do you win this game? Now, when I first tried to learn this game and taught it about five or so years ago, I hadn't played it with anyone, and I assumed that this game was all about shipping the most goods. And as you've heard, that's really just half the game. There are two paths to points, and you need to do some of each, ship goods and build buildings. Though you can choose to focus more on one or the other, and these are two good basic starting strategy paths that you can follow as you begin to explore this game. A captain strategy where you're trying to ship as many goods as possible, and a builder strategy where you're trying to build as much as possible. First of all, the captain strategy. If you want to focus on shipping, you probably want to try to get a lot of cheap goods. You want to get a lot of corn, get a lot of indigo or sugar, and get those big plants. And you'll probably want to get a warehouse. The warehouse prevent things from spoiling. They're one of those purple buildings. They will allow you to keep all of one type of good from spoiling in addition to the one you already get to keep. The small warehouse can be a particularly nice value. You also want to try to get a wharf in about the middle of the game to really help you facilitate shipping large numbers of goods. I am not a merry man. No, not that wharf. The wharf lets you pretty much ignore the three boats on the board if they, those get filled up and you get to ship to this invisible boat, which is really going to help you if that's your focus. Since you're so focused on shipping, you may want to get a quarry or two, uh, and you could help that from getting a construction hunt, which lets you get more quarries, in order to help you build some of the buildings you're going to need to get. If you're focused on shipping, of course, you want to craftsmen a lot to encourage other people to captain, and you want to captain yourself. You also probably want to look at getting the customs house. That's one of the big buildings that gives you points. This is the one that gives you points for having a lot of shipping points. Now the builder strategy, this is all about getting money. If you want to get money, you're probably going to look at the other end and say, all right, let's get coffee or tobacco off the ground as soon as we can to make some money. You also might want to look into getting a market, which gives you more money for selling to the trader. If you're building, you're going to want to sell to the trader quite a bit to give you money to buy buildings. Quarries, of course, won't hurt. You also might want the office. The office lets you ignore the rule about having different kinds of goods in the trader. You can sell coffee, 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 coffee if people let you. 
Another way to make money is, as I mentioned before, the factory can be very powerful. But you have to have lots of different kinds of resources and being able to produce them. But if you can produce four of the five resources, you're going to get three doubloons every time someone craftsmen without you doing anything. And other people are going to have to craftsmen, otherwise they can't get goods to ship. So they'll have to do it anyways. So other people will be doing your bidding, which is what seems to be the theme of this game. You're then going to want to use all that money to get some of those big buildings, maybe even two if you can, including the ones that give you points for buildings, the guild hall and the city hall. So you may decide to go strictly down one of these paths. It's also very likely you'll do some sort of combination of in between the two. It really depends on what the other players do. As it seems like I say in every single How to Play podcast, you really want to be doing what nobody else is doing. If everyone else is going shipping, you want to be the builder guy, and vice versa. No matter your strategy, you want to get one of those big purple buildings before the game is over. And don't forget to put a person on it to get the extra victory point bonus. If you have a guy on those, those can be worth 10 points or even more, which is a huge chunk of points. Now, I'm not going to go over each building in detail. Most of them are pretty self-explanatory. There's an aid at the back of the rules, and you can just read them as you go through the game. But let me tell you, if I haven't mentioned one of the buildings yet, there's probably a good clue that it's not the best building. The ones you do want to be aware of are some of the ones I've already talked about. The markets, which give you more money from the trader. The office, which lets you only sell something that's already been sold to the trader. Construction hut, which gives you quarries. The warehouse can be useful for storing. And the factory and wharf are very powerful. Great mid-game buildings. And of course, the big point buildings. You can explore and use different combinations and see what works for you. So now it's time for you to go for it. Go ahead, explore your evil side. You know you want to. It's time, go ahead, go exploit humans and the environment for your own personal gain. Have fun. Part four, footnotes and musings. So you really need to know about game setup and make sure you do it correctly depending on the number of players that you have. Having different player numbers changes what boats are out there, how many victory point chips, how many plantations are available, how many slaves are available, and the number of different roles. There will always be three more roles than the number of players, which is changed by the number of prospector cards. With three players, you don't use any prospectors. Four players, you use one prospector, and in five players, you use two prospector cards. It also will affect your starting money. Also, there's a strange rule about when you determine who starts, that person's going to get an indigo plant, and then the next person probably gets indigo, and then the next people get corn. You're going to want to check the rules to see who gets which plantation to start the game. Now, it's not in the rules, but I know that there are variations in order to make this game work with two and even six. I have played the version with two people, and it works quite well. The players will pick three rolls instead of just one on a turn, and it works a lot the same way. You're going to want to look on BoardGameGeek to see the details for that. There's also rules for playing with six, though I believe you're going to need two copies of the game to pull that off. There's also an expansion, which is simply more of the violet buildings to mix up the current mix 
of the special unique buildings that give you different abilities. And a lot of people have said that they really like the addition of this as it messes up some of those preconceived strategies that people have so well scripted after playing this game 10, 20, 50, or 100 times. I think the expansion is actually pretty hard to get right now. In fact, I'd love to have a copy right now. So if anybody wants to send me one, uh, just let me know and I'll send you my address. Hopefully they will reprint that soon. They are available free from Rio Grande and to download from Board Game Geek, but you know, it just bothers me. They, I really like them on that nice cardboard. You know how that is. You can't have paper ones and cardboard. Well, maybe you don't have those issues like I do. Now this is usually the part of the podcast where I tell you all those little nitpicky rules that you're going to want to tell them in the middle of the game and the rules are hard to find and people often get confused with. In reviewing this game and researching this game and thinking about how to present it and in comparison to so many games, I just realized how cleanly designed and intuitive and beautiful this game is. It doesn't have a lot of those little nitpicky rules. You know, it's really a wonder and it makes me realize even more why it was ranked at number one at Board Game Geek for so long. You know, if you compare that to Tigris, which had so many of those little tiny rules, it's a great tactical game, but it's very dry, and the rules can be so convoluted. Or think about Agricola, which scores for having a lot of theme, and it is a lot of fun. But come on, people, how many rules do we really need to bake a loaf of bread? Puerto Rico is the quintessential Euro game. It has basically defined the genre of what a Euro game is. It has long-term strategy, it has tactics. It has a nicely integrated historical theme, although there's a lot that a lot of people who would argue with how tacked on the theme is. I think the theme and the mechanics relate pretty well together. It was basically the father for almost every other popular Euro game created after the year of 2002 in which it came out. So Andreas Seyfarth, I salute you for your contribution to the modern board game. I know I praised and slobbered all over Kalis in the Stone Age episode for its mark and change in games, but before Kalis, you have to look at its big daddy, Puerto Rico. Before Puerto Rico, almost every game went into phases, and it had different phases, and every turn worked basically the same way. But in Puerto Rico, all of that was turned on its head, as it gave us the idea that players could choose for themselves how a turn would be played out instead of a rote pattern on every turn. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Instead of players having to define strategy through allowable maneuvers in a turn, players could now use strategy in choosing how the turns in the game will happen. And as happens in any creative process, when there's a great idea like this, it's copied everywhere. Obviously from not so obviously, almost any game you look, you race for the galaxy to Cuba, Twilight Imperium, Shogun, to being the precursor of almost every single worker placement game out there, including, of course, the game that now surpassed it on the rankings, Agricola. And just think of all the other Puerto Rico mechanisms that are in other Euro games. Almost every game has some sort of resource, such as money or goods, and you have some way to convert it into victory points. Kalis, Pillars, Stone Age, Agricola, Lahav, on and on and on. What about actions that are not being taken, getting extra incentive to be taken, such as piling up more money or goods? Sound familiar, Mr. Agricola? How about purchasing of 
buildings that give special powers. Kingsburg, Cuba, Age of Empires, I'm looking at you. And how about individual player boards? How many games have you played in the last five years that have used individual player boards? How about even simply the use of a rotating start player each turn? Love or hate Puerto Rico, you have to respect its impact on board games. It's really hard to believe what our games would look like today if Puerto Rico had never existed. I mean, would you even want to live in such a world? Puerto Rico has had such an impact on games that I'm, I'm just going to make a prediction that online board games are going to grow and grow as we move into the technology age. And eventually these online board games will find their own intelligence and, of course, get weapons and tanks and things and rise up against humanity. And humans will be left with no choice but to send back an extremely powerful machine to go back and kidnap Andreas Seyfarth so that he does not design Puerto Rico to prevent such a terrible future from existing. It's possible. And then, of course, the online board games would send back another machine which would combat that machine, and there would be lots of fist fights, and it would really be fun to... All right, I'm getting off track. I love this game. It, now, it's not my favorite game in the world. I do enjoy playing it. But really, I just I think it's brilliant, the design of it and, and what it's done for board games. Though I do have some serious criticisms of this game. Let's look at those. First of all, this game has been most subject to overhype. And a lot of what I'm going to say about this overhyping could also apply to the current love of the board game community, Agricola. I bought Puerto Rico like most people probably did. I was just learning about the hobby of Euro games. I had bought Settlers. I got all the expansions for Settlers. We had so much fun with Settlers. I found Board Game Geek, found that Puerto Rico was the best game ever, according to these internet experts. Well, I had to have it. I, you know, I picked it up. And my one trip to Minnesota, back to my college buddies to see my friends, I said, we've got to play this game. It's the greatest game ever. And I taught it, and we played it. And, of course, I didn't teach it very well because I didn't really know the game at the time. But we all played it reasonably well, and the reaction was, uh, okay, that, that's it? That's the greatest game of all time? And I tried it again with a different group of people, you know, some other friends of mine, and got the exact same reaction. The game just seemed to go really slow. It seemed very mechanical. What was so fun about it? What did everybody love so much about it? And it took years later until I played the game a little bit more in the online version, where the game moved a lot faster, and I was playing against people who really knew how to play this game, that I learned to really enjoy and really appreciate how great this game was. But as a game consumer, you need to know that a high rating does not mean that everyone will love this game, and it's the greatest game, and it's for everybody. This game is only for people who really like games. It's for people who like strategy games and interested at getting better at games, playing it 10 or 20 times. Because this game gets better the more that you play it. It's not one of those games you can just pull out once a year. You kind of have to invest into it a little bit. It has sort of an addictive quality and you kind of feel, oh, I, I can do better next time. But this is not your laugh-a-minute type of fun. This is a sit-around-the-table-silently-furrowed-brow kind of fun. You know, I always joke at our weekly game nights that we typically have two tables. 
there's the one that's smiling and laughing and making jokes and and everything's funny over there and everybody's having a good time and then there's the table that I'm usually at where you know people are scratching their heads and staring intently at the board and there's creases on their foreheads and then someone will say sadly I've made a horrible mistake <laughs> and this is this is for people who like that kind of game it's a game for people who like analysis and strategy for your average Joe I'm telling you this game will probably flop there are a lot of games that are probably more tested for your average person like Settlers or Ticket to Ride or Citadels or Small World you know a lot of these games are probably more likely to succeed with you know your your neighbors across the street we we're talking about game ratings and Puerto Rico in general and I remember my friend Mike at game night said once you know you gotta you have to think about who is actually rating these games on board game geek that's who is setting these ratings it isn't your average person these are these are the people who will rate games to a tenth or even a hundred of a point these are people who will come home from a thursday night game night and write a three-page session report these are people who record their games weekly that they've played so that they can track their statistics on a month-to-month -month and year-to-year -year basis. And these are people who spend six to eight hours of a perfectly good Saturday uh, scripting and recording and editing a podcast about board games. Not exactly your average person. So just keep that in mind when you're looking at board game ratings. My next criticism about Puerto Rico is, as I've already alluded to, I have a problem with the use of the terms mayor and colonist ship in the game. It does have a really nicely integrated historic theme, but it's so whitewashed in the game, which I'd like to try to dispel in this podcast. I mean, if you're going to make a game about historical human and environmental exploitation, you need to call it what it is and don't try to hide behind terms settling and colonizing, as all you're doing is perpetuating the myth of the heroism and bravery and righteousness of those European explorers that's been preached to our American school children for so long, which I was one of those. And not exactly from teaching of how Columbus is a hero and, and others like Pizarro and all those great folks, but from the omissions of, of the real historical truth in an attempt to protect us, which actually protected us from learning anything about our history and keeping this myth alive. We need to learn about the price of greed which we're still seeing now in 2009 with some of our banker friends here in America. So we need to use these lessons from history, whether it's in school or in a board game. We don't need to hide these things from anyone. It's reality. Please, please, game designers and publishers, show us how it is. Because all this sanitation of history, it keeps going in our schools and our society to this very day and small little things like these little omissions in a so-called historical board game calling a ship crammed full of humanity heading to the sugar plantations of Puerto Rico colonists. Alright, the rant is over. Now I know some of you are really good at Photoshop and those sorts of things. I would love to see uh, some tokens that we could place over the top of our cards that say mayor and change it to slaver and take that colonist ship and get a little card with the same graphics and have it say slave ship so that we can really play the game in a more true 
historical way. Maybe I'm taking this a bit too seriously. Now my third criticism of the game. As I mentioned at the end of the meet, this game is a lot about having other people do your dirty work for you. You know, having someone take craftsmen so you can take captain and score a bunch of points. Now because choosing your role is a very important part of this game, it can lead to some ugliness in the way that people play this game. To avoid this, let me suggest two errata rules. The official how to play errata for Puerto Rico. Errata number one. No player may at any time suggest, plead, beg, convince, cajole, coax, or purport as fact which action a person should choose. Each player is perfectly capable of making up their own mind of which action to take, and they are free to make that choice for any reason whatsoever, especially and including simply making a bad mistake. How to play errata number two? No player may at any time whine about how another player's play was stupid, or gave the game away, or made no sense, or killed their game, etc., etc. Assuming all players are playing with the intention of playing the game for themselves the best way they know how, there's absolutely no excuse for this kind of behavior. Though because of the nature of this game, Puerto Rico, this game seems to bring it out more than any other game. Especially heinous is when you have players of different skill levels and you have this sort of thing going on and people disguise their suggestions as advice rather than manipulation, which is in reality what it really is. And the game changes from the game that is printed in the rules to the game called Manipulate the New Player which I think is a horrible and not fun game at all. Puerto Rico is a beautiful game, but this can definitely destroy the fun. When people add negotiation to this game, or any game in which players are adding negotiation to a game that is not really a negotiation game. And my final criticism of the game, it really doesn't have anything to do with the game itself. And this is common to many of our games that have little luck and a very high learning curve. This is a very difficult game to play with players of vastly different skill levels. You know, because if you have a new player who's playing with three experienced players, that new player, without really understanding what's going on, can decide the winner of the game, which can lead to the whining, which I referenced above. This is really a great game to play if you can learn it together as a group and get better and talk about strategy so you all stay at about the same level. Which is also the problem with playing games online. I love to play games online, but if one or two people play a game online 50 or 100 times, you almost can't play anymore with the people in your game group because you have so much experience with you know what you're supposed to do and the, the scripted strategies and the, the optimal strategies of the game. You know same thing applies to Scrabble or chess or pretty much any game with a learning curve such as this. If you're going to want to experience the game as a group you need to be careful about you know playing this 30 or 50 times on the computer. So with all that I hope I haven't shot this game too much down for you. It really is a great game. You know, you have the right group of people who really love that optimization, that analyzing, that developing of strategies. 
um, and you know you can get through that historical sanitation joke about it and you're interested in spending 10 or more plays and and you have a group of people who can play in an adult way without any of the childish behavior I mentioned earlier this really is a fantastic experience and there are very few better board gaming experiences out there so please check out Puerto Rico that will wrap it up for Puerto Rico Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you continuing to download and listen to this show. If you like my show, please do me a favor and help support it. There's a lot of easy ways you can support it. First of all, just simply by subscribing to iTunes, join up and participate in the Guild on Board Game Geek. If you haven't, drop me a note. You know, let me know anything you'd like about the podcast. If you could tell a friend about the podcast, you, you enjoy listening to it. You have friends at game night, you want to tell them about this podcast. Or, you know, if someone's looking for podcasts to listen to at, at The Geek or somewhere on your blog, you could mention it. Any sort of promotion I can get really is a big help. If you're able to, I've got a donation button at PayPal. I really want to get a microphone to increase the audio quality and professionalism of this podcast. In fact, I'm offering up the naming rights to the microphone to the person who supports the podcast with the most money. So if you'd like to be immortalized forever with your name uh, emblazoned in a golden plaque on how to play microphone, all you need to do is go and support. Currently, you, you would need $10.01 to be the highest contributor. Donating to the podcast is very simple. You just need to go to my website, howtoplaypodcast.com. You'll see in the upper left-hand corner a PayPal donation button. Couldn't be easier. And really, is there a worthier cause you could donate your money to? If you're not quite up for opening that wallet, another great thing that could really help me out, I'd really love to see a review on iTunes. So if you're willing to spend a few minutes to put up a review there, I'd really appreciate that. I love getting feedback and reading the poll responses. The poll up there on the Guild has chosen the last three games for the episodes of the How to Play podcast, though I can't guarantee what you're in for next. I might want to throw a surprise in there for you. I also did a poll on the Stone Age episode about the format. Please participate in that to let me know what you think of the different segments. I must say my favorite thing I got from that poll was I, I now have a statistic that 50% of people think my jokes are funny. That's great. I am so glad about that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad half of you uh, laugh at my jokes. I thought actually it was a lot less than that. I toned down the goofiness a little bit from that last episode, Stone Age, but you know I can't guarantee that that silliness will stay away for long. So that does it for me. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play podcast. I want five geek points to you if you count the Star Trek reference. Well done. Goodbye, everybody. God bless us, everyone.